Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here. Astride, a brand new year of the monthly magazine show for your ears. Trends, sex advice, amazing life stories. We've got it all. Here's what's coming up today. It's kind of helped me understand who I am. I think it's helped my relationships. It's not like I've ever had to kind of taper the dose up building a resistance or anything like that. I think one drop now feels like it would do the same as it did then. Adventures in microdosing. I meet the listeners who take extreme drugs in an extremely moderate way. Plus... Hopefully if it works on you, it will make you say, but, <laughs> but in a pleasurable way. Don't call it the G-spot. Alex Fox on how to unlock bedroom pleasure. And Ollie Peart recalibrates his body for 2023. That's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters and hello to Sarah, who says, Hey, Ollie, I'm a student at Bournemouth University. I started listening to The Modern Man around 2021, but was grateful to have found it a few years after its debut so that I could binge episodes. <laughs> that is... Uh... That is the only way you can binge a monthly show, isn't it, Sarah? Just get to us five years after everyone else. Um, not only has it been great, she says, for hours on the train from Bournemouth to Hertfordshire, the Peart Man Express route there, uh, it was a great escape when I found myself burnt out and struggling with my mental health. Um, that's really great to hear. Thank you. I, I sometimes wonder how we can support people who are feeling a bit low when so often we talk about such dark material. But um, I suppose sometimes just... Realising our contributors have been through it or had it worse <laughs> could probably be some solace, can't it? Uh, she continues, Ollie, you have such a unique and brilliant format. I love every segment. My favourite episode was Lost at Sea. I didn't even know it was possible for someone to survive that long under those conditions. Though there are plenty of other less sensational stories that you've done which have been fascinating to listen to. And I love that you explore and give a platform to those whose stories you wouldn't otherwise hear, e.g. the Downing Street heckler, which was eye-opening about political media. Thank you, Sarah. It is really nice to get feedback like that on our back catalogue because it's pretty extensive. We've been going a while now. In fact, Paul Lambert, who you mentioned, the Downing Street heckler, sadly died now. Um, but that's the magic of podcasting, isn't it? You know, we have this incredible long tail. Our interviews are evergreen. They stand the test of time. It's new to you, isn't it, if you've just found us? I'm not sure that I could uh, stand by all of our tech predictions from the Zeitgeist, though. Um, speaking of which, thank you to those of you who visited the Zeitgeist Christmas collab shop on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk slash shop. Uh, it's still open. I mean, open. It is basically just a, a web page linking to all the businesses you heard us mention in our Christmas episode. Um, but I'm pleased to tell you it attracted over a thousand visitors on the day it went online with over a hundred orders completed for Christmas. Uh, the Brick Chocolate Collab was particularly popular, which is good to hear because it is delicious chocolate. Um, and also worth mentioning that all the partners we're collaborating with there have agreed to give a portion of their profits to good causes as well. So get shining that beard. <laughs> Go get some rune silk. Um, a massive thanks of you as well who've bought us a beer in the past few months. Uh, Barbara and Sarah amongst them. Uh, and Evie as well, who's bumped up her donation to the show from yearly to monthly. And Isabel, who's gone from six monthly to monthly. That that's amazing. Our web form is completely customizable, so you can contribute what you can afford when you want to. The price of one pint of beer now, or just occasionally to say, hey, I'm here, thank you for making the show for me. Uh, or you can make a more regular contribution, one or two beers per episode, to recognise that we are making this podcast for you, and we can't do it without your support. And in fact, 
we really can't do it without your support. You should know I've just been looking at our advertising inventory for 2023. And after this month, nothing. <laughs> it's just blank at the moment. Now, hopefully we'll fill it uh, by next month a little bit. And if you run a business, do get in touch. Um, but, you know, when you're not hearing ads, that means there is no money coming in apart from the support we get from you. We really are an independent show. That means there isn't a bigger company funding us. It is me and producer Matt and Alex and Ollie, and that's it. And we are paid for our time and we need to do research and travel and pay studio expenses, editing, etc. So if you can afford to make a contribution and buy us a beer using our completely safe web form, please do. Please do. modernmanwith2ends.co.uk slash beer. Because we are an ambitious show here on The Modern Man. Think of the amazing stories we were able to bring you in 2022. Adam Campbell, who triggered the avalanche that killed his wife. Charlotte Henry, who became a lawyer so she could exonerate her brother from a gang-related murder. Robin Farr, who described in detail losing someone she loved to medically-assisted dying. These are the kinds of stories that we love to tell, but they take time to find and make. They're rare. They don't fall in our laps. Um, and we bring them to you with no agenda, no bias, just an open mind and a curiosity about the modern world. If that is the sort of content you value, uh, not to mention Ollie's challenges and Alex's sex advice, of course, you can only get it here. Help us make the show in 2023. Modernmanwith2ends.co.uk slash beer. Thank you. Uh, right, coming up in today's episode, you will learn what GSA stands for. Uh, you will learn what it's like to be on liquid magic mushrooms at work. And you'll learn where your weenus is. Let's go. It is time to take our inaugural dip for 2023 into the zeitgeist. Your trends tested with Ollie Pitt. Hello, Ollie Pitt. Hey, Ollie. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. How was your new year? Uh, Covid-fied, wasn't it? Yeah, it was just... <laughs> I can, It's the sound of you saying, should I tell him that we've all been ill? Because that's a downer. <laughs> just full of snot. Yeah, it was just very snotty. Just loads of yeah. snot, loads of tissues, and not even in the fun way. I'm sure there's some like ancient Chinese saying for, may all your future years come in with tissues in a good way. Yeah. You were here to tell us about uh, health trends for 2023, ways to make our bodies better. What have you got for us? Well, I'm going to I'm going to let you help me sort of na navigate this. I'm going to give you some options, Ollie. Light or dark? Light or dark? <laughs> do you want light or dark? Does this equate to meat? Am I choosing what you do with your breast or your thigh? You'll find out. <laughs> okay, I'll go dark, please. Dark. Okay. I'll start with Tercepatide. Sounds like a comic book villain. Tercepatide is actually a, a drug. Uh, it's a drug which is currently used uh, to treat type 2 diabetes. And what it does is it suppresses your appetite and it helps your body um, break down sugar and fat, right? So it can okay. help people with type 2 diabetes. Uh -huh. Currently, there are some celebrities that are taking this drug illegally. That bit about how it breaks down sugar and fat in the body also has the added benefit of allowing you to lose weight. Quite a bit of weight as well, if you uh, take it for long enough. Who? who? What celebrities? I, I could tell you who the celebrities are, you know, within the music industry, good singers, but I'm not going to because I can't. So 
the prediction is what? That this drug that's around Beverly Hills is going to end up in uh, the home counties? The prediction is uh, that it will become more mainstream because it's set to be approved by the FDA this year. So you can legally get access to this drug for weight loss. The trouble is it's really expensive. It's going to cost you around $13,000 a year. Wow. And okay, so this a... is not going to be on the NHS then, is it? But, no. but, but, but hold on, you're, I mean, you're doing this whole thing with like a note of cynicism. But I mean, if it is an appetite suppressant and then therefore it works for people with type 2 diabetes and the FDA have approved it for weight loss because if you're just really fat and the reason you're really fat is because you need an appetite suppressant, then then this could be quite a successful drug, couldn't it? This could be the thing everyone's waiting for. Well, the problem is, is that uh, people with type 2 diabetes need it. So if you have more demand of it and there's not enough to go around, that means that the people with type 2 diabetes can't get access to it. Oh, That's okay. basically the issue. <laughs> there's there's right. not enough of it to go around at the moment. Okay, um, so, so we'll know got... who to point our finger at when we see lots of album covers with suddenly much slimmer stars on it. <laughs> Exactly. Unless they've legitimately taken up jogging. Interesting. Okay. Uh, what else have you got for us? Well, dark or light, Ollie. Dark or light. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Forgive me. We're only round two into this mad game you've invented. <laughs> uh, fine. So, okay. So, whichever one I choose, I get to hear the other one anyway, do I? All right. Light then. Light. Okay. Here we go. Poo tests for personalised plans. Uh, health in 2023 is all going to be about personalisation. As Again, in, seems eminently sensible to me. Like yeah, you can well, learn a lot about people from their poo, as Gillian McKeith famously informed us. Not yeah, and it's not just poo. Actually, it's their blood and piss, everything. Uh, and and the idea being is that when you can learn all of that stuff, you can say, "Hey, you, your gut responds to this type of food in this type of way. This happens, so you should eat this thing and you should take this thing." And uh, in twenty twenty three, it's going to be a big growing industry. There is a, a company in the UK called Zoe who are one of the the, the leaders in this. They always make it sound so friendly, don't they? they Isn't do, that interesting? Don't they? Choose a woman's name, like an open one syllable woman's. We're Zoe. You know, they could be making mattresses, they could be a home decoration service, but no, they're going to sample your shit. But the point is, they get, they take it, they analyse it, and then they offer you a plan off all of that data that they've gathered on you um, to help you basically be more healthy. And it is hugely popular already. If you want to sign up to the Zoe sort of programme, uh, you're going to have to join the queue, and there are 200,000 people in that queue at the moment goodness so this is you you crap in a tube and send it off in the post to you a bit like um a dna test yeah exactly all of these tests are done at home you don't have to go to a lab or anything like that and then yeah you you, you send them off god help the person that has to open these things i mean come on do you think that person's like yeah i work in technology for a really trendy startup <laughs> i what i've actually well it's kind of personalized logistics Doing some really exciting stuff with medical records. Have you ever actually had to do a poo sample for like the doctors or whatever? I think so. Yes. I mean, it's yeah. not one of the memories I cherish. No, no, no. But you get like a little. I've had to do one, and you get a it's little. It's like tube. a toothpick, isn't it? You scoop it out. Yeah, but when I, I don't, I can't fully remember what the circumstances were behind this happening. But when I had to do mine, I had to go and take it to the hospital myself. And I had to go into a lab and there were so many people in this lab and it wasn't like there was a front desk or anything. They were just all there. And I was like, here's my shit. <laughs> mm. Well, 
you've, I guess, outlined the market that Zoe have stepped into, obviously, getting rid of that embarrassment, isn't it? Well, yeah, but then I didn't get a personalised plan at the end of that. I just got told whether or not my gut was all right. No. I didn't get told what I was supposed to eat or what I yeah. wasn't supposed to eat. Okay, what next? Uh, ear seeds? Did we? D- uh, Danielle in Bristol tasked you with testing out ear seeds last month. I don't know what that means, but did you do it? I did do it. I didn't know what it meant either. Uh, did you know what they were before you... No. Right, okay. So ear seeds, if you've never heard of them before, they are actually seeds. Um, they're a traditional sort of Chinese medicine, basically. Um, mm. And the seeds themselves are from a herb called a vaccaria. That's where the seeds are from. And they're just basically really hard, black-looking seeds. But now, today... You can get all sorts. You can get ceramic and metal and that kind of stuff. And what you do with them, I can show you them, Ollie. They're basically, they look Ooh. like little um, stickers. You just something up to the camera that, yeah, it looks exactly looks like a grid of stickers that my three-year-old would be playing with. A grid of stickers, exactly that. And then on the other side are the seeds themselves, right? From here, they look like little cartoon eyeballs. You, you peel them off here and you place them at various points in your ear. And it kind of is like an acupressure kind of thing. And each part of your ear sort of represents right. a different part of your body. So it's a little bit like reflexology in that sense. I had no idea where to start or what to do with this. So I, I reached out to a company called AccuSeeds, um, which is run by uh, a girl called Giselle Boxer. And she basically explained to me what ear seeds are supposed to do and how I was supposed to do it. So she suffered from uh, chronic fatigue syndrome for a few years ago and she was sort of really struggling with it and she went uh-huh. to the doctors and the doctors were like there's nothing wrong with you they did loads of blood tests and all this kind of stuff and she was like oh god you know i'm kind of i'm at the end of my tether i don't know what i'm going to do here she like she was saying to me that it, it was a point where she barely she could hardly get out of bed or anything like that it was it was that bad but her mum was really into home, homeopathic medicine so she said well, why didn't you try it you kind of got nothing to lose so she went to go and see a chinese doctor he recommended a whole bunch of things. So she tried these ear seeds out and she found that for her, they sort of helped her, made her a little bit calmer and uh, they helped with her energy levels and that kind of stuff. But the problem that she had was that they're very, very obvious, these things on your ear. So when you stick them on your ear, as I have done, yes. and walk around. So how do they stick on your ear? Is it literally with glue, like a sticker? That's how they're on so that you can stand up vertically and they don't fall off. It's exactly the same as a as a plaster, you know. It's exactly the same material in the, in this okay. instance for the, with the ones that I've got, and and you just stick them on your, you know, on the area where they where they're supposed to go. But you can see it, so it looks like basically you're walking around and you've got leprosy of the ear or something because you or you've cut your ear multiple times. So what she decided to do is create a, a line of ear seeds which are aesthetically lovely as well. So she's created a line of ear seeds where you've got a see through sticker. But the ear seeds themselves are smaller and she does them in gold and silver. So they kind of look almost like a like an ear stud. But your ear is so small. I don't mean your ear, Ollie Pitt. I mean anyone's ear <laughs> is so diminutive compared to the other pressure points that we know about through acupuncture, like on your feet is obviously the one that most people know about. I mean, that's a bigger surface area, isn't it? It feels mm. like trying to find the right point on your ear to target when you're, for example, trying to deal with a pain in your elbow, that could be quite complicated. Yeah, and it is. I I got sent with the with the kit that I got a map of the ear, and and there are literally like fifty different spots of the ear where you could stick these things. I'm like, well, how the hell am I supposed to be accurate in that way? Um, 
what Giselle's done with her company is she's they've redrawn the map, but they've tried to simplify it. So they've created sort of a spot rather than sort of saying, you know, uh, you can put this for this certain part of your body or this for your certain this certain part of your body or whatever. It's like put it roughly here if you're struggling with anxiety. Put it roughly here if you're struggling with depression and that kind of thing. Um, and just she was seems saying- so mad, doesn't it? Because like I've tried a thing for anxiety before. Not that I particularly am a very anxious person, but it did relax me when I had like sort of stage fright type things to deal with mm. um like a an electric wrist I, i'm trying to say watch but it's not a watch because it doesn't have a face on it just an electric wrist strap that slowly did a little pulse like on your well what's another word for pulse <laughs> <laughs> slowly did a little pulse on your pulse um and tried to kind of regulate i suppose you know like the um adrenaline running through your body mm. that kind of made sense because you you can feel yourself that that's where your blood's pumping and it's sending a signal to your brain the whole time being like calm down calm down keep your pulse at a certain rate and i found that quite useful but on your ear like a sticker on your ear how do you even like i mean how could that reduce anxiety yeah well it's interesting is that i so a few of the user cases that, that that Giselle mentioned to me were things like back pain and chronic pain and that kind of stuff for using ear season. I was a bit sceptical about that. I'm, I'm still not sure about that. You know, people do swear by it, but, you know, me personally, I was like, I'm not quite sure how that would work. Even some soldiers use it for PTSD as well. Wow. But when I was wearing them, when I was using them, I can understand how they could help somebody with that struggles with anxiety and maybe panic attacks. Because when they're on your ear, your ear is surprisingly sensitive actually you know it's it's kind of like the cartilage bit and all that kind of stuff and these ear seeds are really hard like they are really really hard and the idea is that you massage them sort of three to four times a day when they're actually on <laughs> you Why so you not laughing? only have you got to walk around with a sticker stuck to your ear you've got to massage your own ear in public yeah. Well, no, you're, I, I, the word massage implies that you're sort of like lubing up with some oil yeah. and you're like rubbing it around <laughs> you. No, 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 nothing like that. You, you can like look, look really gently sort of press them and actually any anything harder than a gentle press, it would, it would probably hurt. But, you know, much like that pulse thing that you were talking about, it kind of focuses you a little bit. So if you were mm. having a panic attack. Yeah, it's distracting. Yeah, you I could just that. gently touch that. So I can see how they could work in that respect. And it wasn't unpleasant. I'm not convinced by it because, you know, maybe I haven't been doing it long enough. I don't know. But I can kind of see why people might try it or sort of, I don't know, almost like a comfort blanket kind of uh, con- continue to do it. Yeah. You know? Okay. Stephen as well got in touch last episode to say you should try paddle tennis. Was that one you were able to find time to do between Christmas and now? I'm, I'm actually gutted that I haven't been able to do this yet. And it's not paddle tennis. It is padel tennis. P-A-D-E-L, right? That's how you say it. P-A-D-E-L, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, are you sure um, it's padel and not, like, padel? Oh, uh, the YouTube videos I've watched, it's okay. definitely padel. Well, I'm not going to argue with the YouTubers. Think of a hybrid between squash and tennis. That's what padel tennis is. So you can, like, you know, bounce the ball off the walls, and it's normally played in doubles as well. The rackets are slightly smaller, but the scoring is the same as tennis. And it just looks like awesome oh, fun. Oh, okay, okay. The scoring is the same as tennis, but otherwise it's squash. I mean, when you say think of a hybrid between squash and tennis, squash is doing a lot of the DNA there, isn't it? Like, as soon as it bounces off a wall, it's squash, basically, isn't it? Well, no, because you've got, you've got four walls. Like, well, you do have four walls in squash, don't you? My point is you've got, you've got four walls and a net, which you don't have in squash, don't you? You don't have the net. You've just don't got a single net. wall okay. that you hit it against. All right, so, so you've got the you've net got... and the scoring from tennis and yeah, everything and... else from squash. 
Yeah, and it's it's normally like most of the time you'll play it in doubles rather than in singles. Okay, so it's more social than squash, arguably. Although when I see people play squash, they can't hear each other talk anyway because of the noise of the ball. I notice that they're shouting. You notice that? But that's the thing with squash as well, isn't it? It's it's in a it's in a covered court, whereas um, paddle tennis isn't. Paddle tennis isn't. It's not in a covered court. So if you're shouting really loudly, it probably doesn't reverberate quite as much as it would do in a squash court. It's actually one of Europe's fastest growing sports, so I really want to give it a go. And the video, it, genuinely, it looks awesome, and I'm not that far away from a court, so I'm going to go and give it a go. Oh, are you not? How did you find out that you're not? Well, I was, look, I was looking to see where the nearest courts were. And How one did of you do that? Is I, there like a Puddle Tennis Association or something? Yeah, exactly. It's actually part of the Lawn Tennis Association, so the LTA. So it okay. all sort of falls under the same umbrella. So they're, they've got a list of all the courts that are available in the UK. So if you do want to try does. it... I bet it does. I bet those LTA bastards were like, they're not coming to steal our thunder. <laughs> we own the strawberries and cream around here. <laughs> we're getting a cut. <laughs> imagine, imagine. It's going to be at Wimbledon. We're at Wimbledon yeah. next year. Um, Ollie, thank you for that, uh, Pracy. We've all learned a lot. Uh, if you've got a challenge that you would like to put to Ollie to test on the show across this year, uh, then go to the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and click feedback. Would you like to know what your challenge for next month is? Yes, please. Good. Glad you said that. It's from uh, Ashley in Deptford, who mm. says... The big thing at the end of last year was chat GPT. I don't know what that is, by the way. Uh, most of what I saw people do with it was pretty stupid. Can Ollie Pitt do some clever things with it instead? See, I do know what it is. Whether or not right. I could do anything clever with it, I don't know. It's a chatbot, basically, you know, something you can kind of speak to, but it, but it's... Um, it's artificial intelligence is essentially what it is. The things that people ask it to do, which I think Ashley's referring to, is like mm. write a rap about tuna sandwiches made out of brown bread and butter, and then they post that. Oh, people share it. what it says back, do they? Yeah, exactly. Or like write an erotic novel of the two Ollies, uh, you know, doing stuff to each other on the back of a canal boat i've never had that dream I can't believe but you, you could do that, that. Idea into the ether <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you see what it writes um and it would i see so rather than using so it's an it for open something AI, productive it? or clever. but it's not like um a smart speaker you don't hear it you you talk to it with words on a screen yeah exactly old school I mean, I'm interested to know what an all-purpose AI system can do because the ones that are very specific and bespoke that are used by my bank when you queue with an issue do not work <laughs> when there's like three <laughs> options. Yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. What are you calling about? Fraud. I think yeah. you're calling about balance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anything to yeah. make that better would be, uh, would be great. Well, I look forward to seeing what you do with that. Uh, Ollie, thank you. Cheers, Ollie. In a moment, you're going to meet our guests, Tamsin and Nathan, but first, our record of the month. And this is great. Gaz Coombs has a new album out on the 13th. This is from it. It's called Long Live the Strange. Check it out now.
now. Whilst we've been talking about new beginnings, uh, have you considered perhaps a freshen up of your wardrobe this year? Uh, because if you have, it's easier and more accessible than ever before. Thanks to our sponsors this month, Stitch Fix. Uh, head on over now to stitchfix.co.uk slash man to set up your profile and a style expert will select a few items just for you in your taste, in your size, in your preferred price range. So you get to say, like, I don't need new jeans, thanks. I don't like stripes, but I do like prints. I do like checks. Papa needs a new pair of shoes. Uh, whatever your requirements are, you just tick some boxes. I mean, it's actually fun. And then a real-life Stitch Fix stylist creates a fix personally curated just for you and sends it to your door. And here's the best part. Usually you pay a styling fee of £10 each time you order, but our friends at Stitch Fix have a special offer for you right now. The styling charge for your first order will be waived, giving you the opportunity to try their service completely free of charge. No subscription required. You just keep what you want. Delivery and returns are easy and free, and it's really nice to get a package of new stuff chosen just for you. I get complimented on what they've chosen for me when I wear my stuff from Stitch Fix. It's stuff I wouldn't necessarily find on the high street. And even if I could, I mean, I don't know about you, I've got two kids at my ankles, I haven't got time. So get started today, stitchfix.co.uk slash M-A-N-N, remember the double N, uh, and you'll receive your first fix styled and delivered to you absolutely free. And to sweeten the deal, you'll get an additional 20% off when you keep all five items in your fix. Again, that's stitchfix.co.uk slash M-A-N-N. You've got nothing to lose. Uh, right, time for our middle feature now. And you might remember this time last year on this show, I was talking to Jim, who suffered from PTSD and Tourette's after a car accident, about how cannabis had changed his life for the better and how authorities around the world were waking up to its therapeutic properties. Well, 12 months on, we're returning to the theme, but this time we're looking at some of the harder drugs out there. Um, and a warning, our conversation does include references to suicide. Uh, today, we'll hear from two listeners, man fans, who reached out to me about their adventures in microdosing. What that is and what they take... We'll get to shortly, but first, let's get to know them a bit. In a moment, you'll meet Nathan, who works in the NHS. We've changed his name to protect his identity. But first, Tamsin. Tamsin now lives in Austria, but grew up in Ireland. And from an early age, she was aware that she thought differently. And that was reflected in the clothes she wore. I felt like everyone else was kind of copying each other. I didn't do that. I dressed. <laughs> I don't even want to think about some of the crazy clothes I wear or multicolored. Yeah, I was a little bit out there, let's say. And wearing colourful clothes is sort of an expression of how you feel inside, but it's a way of telling other people that's how you feel inside, isn't it? For me, I mean, I say a colorful phase. I had a colorful phase. I also had a goth phase. I really tried sure. all of it. <laughs> I had green hair. I had pink hair. I had everything. I think for me, it was really about being creative. Any way for me that was some form of self-expression that was fun, that was, you know, an experiment that was playing with um, how people would see me. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think people look at teenagers, particularly teenage girls, who 
dress in unconventional ways or individualistic ways or in tribal ways and think they're searching for an identity. But you're saying it actually comes from a kind of confidence to be playful. For me, it did. For me, it was that I knew I would get stared at on the street and I didn't care. <laughs> I would be like, fine, stare. But look, it, it was the joy in kind of creating the outfits and making things and putting things together. And I did that in every area of my life. I mean, my I was redecorating my parents' house always, <laughs> telling them how things should be. I painted all over the walls of my room. I was very lucky that my parents were flexible and let me do that. So it was kind of any any form of creative expression was where I found joy and excitement. Did you experiment with drugs? Never. Never. I actually never really drank alcohol because I was so aware of my mind and of the effect the next day, even basically any mind-altering substance I didn't want to engage in hugely because whatever the high, the low was worse. And I just felt like anything that could contribute to that, I'm already struggling. I'm already low most of the time. Why would I do anything or take anything that can, that can mess with that and make it even worse? That's quite insightful for a teenager who at the moment hasn't had help. I mean, you know, why does any depressive take alcohol, but plenty do, I guess, to feel different? Yeah, and I guess something about that might have scared me a little bit, um, or it just wasn't in my personality. Uh, I didn't grow up in a, in a house of heavy drinkers. My mom never drank alcohol. Also, you know, the culture is a big part of it you you go out to to get drunk in the uk and ireland especially at that age i wasn't interested but was that difficult being at an irish university and not drinking did it did it mean that you just couldn't participate in various events it meant that people think you're judging them and watching Mm. them so they don't want you along necessarily smoking weed was always kind of prevalent but um taking ecstasy cocaine and other things were all of a sudden became available that I didn't know people who had done those in the past and I didn't know people who had done them and had normal lives kind of did these things recreational and weren't kind of dropouts or things like that and I was introduced to a whole kind of group of people who came from home counties type backgrounds where did these things it was perfectly acceptable in their little circle did you feel nervous about it the first time you took cocaine I think it was always been done in, with a close group of friends who would describe to you what these thing, sensations were like and um, it was never a pressure situation to take those, these kind of things. It was always like, would you like to? So, uh, I, don't, I think there's always um, a nervousness when trying anything new, isn't there? But it never felt like a risky behaviour. It, it never felt dangerous. All my friends were happy, healthy. No one was suffering any kind of um, depression or kind of... Um, suicidal thoughts or anything like that so it just felt this kind of routine uh, that lots of people were doing so when you encountered mates at university who didn't take drugs but did drink because this is the turn of the 21st century and everybody drank yeah did you have that conversation were you one of those guys who was like 
it's no worse than what you're doing. It's the same as booze. It's just a different drug. Uh, I, th I think those conversations probably happened. Um, I think it's over the three, four years of university, it's funny how maybe it was unique to my group, but it seemed that lots of people came away to university having not tried things. And then over time, the, the people who tried things grew, that group grew, and the people who hadn't kind of diminished. Now, I've never insisted or forced anything upon people, but we we have had those kind of honest conversations. What's the difference between smoking or drinking coffee or taking some of these recreational drugs? And what is the difference? I mean, what's your position on that? You know, I mean, I've got a cup of quite strong coffee here with yeah. me now. Is that materially different to if I said, you know, I'm, I'm smoking pot whilst I'm talking to you? Legally, obviously, yes. We're you to be told that tomorrow you couldn't have that coffee and you couldn't have that coffee the next day, I think you'd probably exhibit some kind of signs of withdrawal symptoms that would be similar to somebody coming off much more serious drug. So it's interesting that things like coffee, although legal, um, they do they have some kind of penalty from like taking them away from society. I think... What triggered it was at that stage, my family had cottoned on. They knew I wasn't doing well. I mean, maybe there was some breakup or something that made things a bit worse for a while. Um, but I remember I spoke to my GP at least two or three times before I ever tried any medication. But I think it was, yeah, there wasn't any moment, anything in particular that happened. It was a gradual worsening and things never, I kept expecting things to get better and they just didn't. What was the first medication you took? Uh, it's called Lexapro. It's an SSRI, serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Did you have qualms about that? You know, someone who hadn't drunk because you were concerned about changing your mood? I think in the early days, I, I didn't worry too much about it. I, um, I wanted to feel better at that stage. Um, I, I was actually prescribed right before I was in third year of university. So I was 21 and I was about to go and do a work placement actually in Central Africa. So she prescribed me the medication as a backup. And I kind of said, I'm off to Africa. That'll help. <laughs> you know, I'll be, you know, in a different environment. I love traveling. That will change everything. I won't need this. Three months in, it was clear that I did. It wasn't, it wasn't the, yeah, the experience of being away didn't help in the way I had hoped. Um, so I started taking it there, I think, and continued after I got back, but I didn't last for very long on that particular medication. What else did you try? There's um, mood stabilizers such as lithium, which is actually a salt. So it doesn't work the same as an antidepressant. It works on top of an antidepressant to try and just stabilize the mood because I did fluctuate from very high to very low. I don't have bipolar disorder, but it was somehow kind of on that spectrum, at least according to one of my psychiatrists. So I tried, I think about four or five different antidepressants minimum, um, plus the add-on agents. And each one I had to try for really quite a long, minimum six months to see if they were working, how they were working. My dad was in and out of mental health kind of help. Um, so you kind of think, oh, 
it'll we'll refer him back in and he'll get looked after again and he'll come out and be okay. I don't think he was ever diagnosed, but we we kind of identified that he was probably bipolar. So he'd go through these phases of being quite um, really energetic and wanting to do lots of things and sociable and and then uh, there'd be a depression on the back of that. And so my, I think when my mum lived with him, she'd find it difficult to kind of contain this person that was um, wanted to petition the council and get this done and do all these like things that all sound great. Surely just calm down a bit. And then she knew eventually there'd be a crash or there'd be something that'd trigger. Um, and yeah, so, so um, like I say, unfortunately, uh, when I was about 30, he, um, yeah, he hit rock bottom effectively and, and took his own life. Similar thing happened to my uncle, who also took his own life um, two or three years. It was my dad's brother two or three years before. So having gone through that experience once, we kind of knew that there was a potential for this. Um, uh, what kind of, I mean, was he on a lot of medication himself? Uh, yes, yeah. So the, I think it's at these SSRIs or the kind of, um, but um, I, to be honest, I can't remember exactly the medication, but he did, we had a number of times him going out of these kind of crisis centres um, that sadly in the NHS are on quite enough of at the moment. I mean, obviously losing your father is a, a very difficult thing to go through, period. Once the dust had settled, bearing in mind the manner of his death and your uncle's death, the natural thing would be to worry, am I going to fall prey to some of these health problems too? Yeah, I definitely have kind of had those thoughts. And I think that's why I've um, made sure I've tried to take steps, proactive steps to um, uh, either be aware of personal trends or am I feeling worse today? Um, but then it's, it's, I see it as something like exercise. You need to do, have these little routines and uh, the kind of um, ways of measuring and monitoring mental health to make sure. What happened to my dad, I sought um, help through the GP and referred me to a counsellor. And she said, I can see you're going through a grieving process, but there's nothing to be worried about. And then um, three or four years ago, I had a particularly stressful situation at work. And I got referred into the occupational therapist counsellor again. And she said, you're absolutely fine. It was good to talk to somebody at that time because of what yeah. I was going through. But um, I feel quite capable to access these services if I didn't feel well, and I think I've had it kind of played back to me that I haven't had any. My, my girlfriend knows, um, yeah, that I'm, she's aware as well with the family history. So I think we're both, um, it's something we've kept an eye on. But yeah, she's, um, I haven't exhibited these signs. We did not expect Austria. That was never the plan. That was never even close to a list of countries I wanted to move to. Uh, but 2020, pandemic, options suddenly limited. The first job offer that came along for him, not for me, was here. And he always had the view that, you know, everything happens for a reason. How was the COVID era? Because, I mean, a lot of people who didn't have any uh, mental health problems started feeling pretty vulnerable then. COVID for me was interesting because I felt like everyone suddenly knew what it was like for me. You know, mm. it was like, oh, your can your plans have been cancelled. Yeah. How many times have I had to cancel plans that I really cared about at the last minute? I've cancelled trips. I've, can you know, all of that, all because my mood just wasn't able for it. You have to stay indoors all the time. Mm, yeah. Used to that, <laughs> you know? So 
aside from the collective fear and anxiety, I don't feel like it had a huge impact on me. And I moved in September of that year. So we kind of missed the first lockdown here and arrived just when things were slightly easier before, say, the winter lockdown here. So again, you find yourself in a different country. This time, were you able to use that geographical distance to help you get away from your inner thoughts? I mean, as always with a move, you are distracted. You have to get things in order. Um, for me, it was it was really hard because I had not expected to come here. I, you know, the one thing I had wanted was to move somewhere in the tropics, somewhere by the coast. And I ended up in an alpine ski country, you know. Um, but that said, I throw myself in. I always think that every place has something to offer. But once the initial, say, two months, when you're just busy trying to set up your life, set up an apartment, once that was over, then it was just back to the same. And and yeah, then winter, lockdown, new country, didn't travel home that year for Christmas. And yeah, my mood just continued the way it always had, up and down, but slowly getting worse. To the extent that I did go to the emergency room one night. And presenting with what? Mostly that I just hadn't been able to stop crying for I don't know how many days at that stage, but probably weeks and feeling just so despairing of that feeling. And no intent to self-harm? No. Um, I knew the, the where you su- ever suicidal question would come up and I would say, for me, it's not that I didn't want to live, it's that I didn't want to live like that. I didn't want to live constantly in that pain. Of course, you can't be in that level of pain without considering it, without thinking about it. It also just must have been exhausting to answer the other question, which is, what's your medical history? I mean, you know, we've been talking for a while and there's a long list. Yeah, I mean, I was used to pretty much going, I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried everything. Medication has never helped. You know, I'm I'm kind of done <laughs> with medication, but... But what what else can you do? You know, you end up in the ER either way. I actually, at that stage, I had thought I will never go on psychiatric medicine ever again because I've tried all of it. None of it has helped. But then a doctor there came up with a different suggestion. What was that? He said that night that he thought I should check into the hospital. And I again said, but why would I? There's, you know, I've tried everything. And he said, well, we have either ketamine, which is very new and very effective, or the other option was ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't really heard much about ketamine. Horse tranquilizer, that's what first comes to mind. I didn't know anything else about it, really. Uh, I knew it was a recreational drug you can find on the street, but I didn't know what it does. You have to be in hospital to do it. Um, I had to go back in, agreeing to check in. Again, at the time I thought I'm gonna go in for a few days, tops a week, Um, mostly just so I can say to my family, look, I did it, I tried it. I told you psychiatric medicine has nothing for me. You know, I can't, can't keep trying drugs, pills anymore that don't do anything. So that's what I felt when I went in, Um, I was, 
beside myself. I was in such a state when I checked in. It was it was awful. But basically, the first month you take it twice a week. Uh, you have to be constantly under supervision. So talk me through the experiences of of actually taking ketamine. Then it's oral, is it? No, it's nasal. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a nasal spray. You breathe it in, essentially. Um, what does it smell like? I mean, how does it feel? It feels like an explosion going off in your sinuses. It doesn't feel like a normal nasal spray. Let's put it that way. It really feels like you you breathe this thing in, something kind of explodes up there in your sinuses. And within two minutes, you feel dizzy and a bit sick and need to lie down. But not something you'd ever experienced before having not taken drugs recreationally. Yeah, true. Never. How did you prepare yourself for that possibility that you might have a bad trip? For me, the whole experience at the time was just a bad trip, (laughs) you know, being in this bizarre hospital, uh, not really speaking the language. I was just, at that point, I finally had some hope because I had started reading a bit and trying to learn a bit about ketamine. So I was more excited to try it, I think. I think, you know, that said, someone who's never done any drugs and they say, here's a hallucinogenic, you're going, cool, what's going to happen? You know, (laughs) what am I going to feel? Did you hallucinate? Not really. It's a dissociative. So I did dissociate quite a lot. It was a very strange feeling. It was like, I could hold conversations, but it was like I was observing. I wasn't me. I was, it it felt like I was floating somewhere above. So I often felt like, was that me? I was there, but I wasn't there. I was kind of there engaging, but I I wasn't, wasn't quite there. And afterwards would sometimes be going, but God, I wonder what I said, you know, (laughs) like I had this because they have to stay with you. Somebody has to watch you for at least two hours after you take it. Usually it was a nurse or a medical student. So sometimes I would chat to them, but then afterwards I, I would have no kind of, you know, God, what did I, what did I say? What did we talk about? I don't know. Was that scary? No, I think I was in control enough to not be too freaked out about what what might have gone on. It was mostly, you know, you, you just feel so dizzy that I mostly just had to lie down and let the few hours pass. How long did it take before you started thinking this might be doing you good? Because, you know, being dizzy and disassociative and trapped in a place where you don't speak the language, that doesn't sound like good thoughts. You know, I wonder when was the moment that I actually noticed a change and I don't know. The interesting thing about ketamine is that it can work within hours. It can, you know, other antidepressants you have to try for at least six weeks, if not longer, to see if they have an effect. Ketamine can have quite a drastic change within hours. I don't think I felt that. I mean, the first day it hit me the hardest, obviously. So I was just focusing on how dizzy I felt and how difficult it was to walk to the end of the corridor, say. But I think within at least two weeks, the difference was was starting to be really clear. So back in 2020, uh, um, I met a friend of a friend, Adam, who kind of started to describe his experience as uh, microdosing with psilocybin, um, which taking kind of small amounts of liquid uh, magic mushrooms. Um, and he talked about the positive effects he'd had on it. Um, Okay, microdosing with psilocybin. Yeah. So the microdosing bit, I know, it means taking small amounts. Liquid magic mushrooms, that's what psilocybin is, yeah. is it? Oh, yeah. So so he buys it off somebody who I think this chap must grind up the mushroom, dry grind up the mushrooms, 
and stew them in alcohol um, to get a, like a, a liquid version of it. Um, and the idea being that you can then take in a kind of a more uniform dose um, as opposed to kind of eating a mushroom or doing something a bit more kind of manual so you can take very small drop. You give an example of being in a kind of you know, a, a work situation where he was presenting and he kind of, he was more, felt comfortable in himself. Um, he said it uh, he, in his spare time, he likes to DJ and he said it gave him kind of focus to do that task. He could like take a small amount and then spend maybe like four or five hours DJing and kind of not get bored or I'm tired. So, yeah. So. so he just gave these kind of cu- couple of scenarios where he'd um, uh, felt kind of more comfortable, less nervous, less self-aware, less um, self-doubting. With the DJing, he said it gave him kind of creativity and things like that. So when Adam told you that he'd been doing this at work on a daily basis, did you think that's something I could do? Uh, yeah, I was interested. I was um, interested to know um, what difference it could uh, make to my life um, at, at the time. Um, yeah, at the time before we had a child, it was pre-pandemic. My life, I seemed to have everything kind of sorted out. I felt this could be quite an interesting thing to try. See, that's the bit that's maybe a bit difficult to relate to, because I thought you were going to say, I was at a time in my life where I was anxious. I was still processing things that had happened in my family. I thought this could be the answer to help me focus. But what you're saying is the opposite. You're saying, I felt sorted, everything was fine, so I'm in a safe place to experiment with drugs. So I think I considered the reward to be I could kind of grow as a person, um, Maybe um, it would help me connect better with friends and family and do my job better or something. Um, I think I was aware that there would be risks, potentially kind of adverse reaction, mental health, um, chemical kind of uh, take introducing an unknown substance. Um, I never kind of went into this planning to do it as something on day one at work. I think the first time I did it was at a weekend to kind of make sure that I wouldn't totally turn into a different person and be in a situation in front of my boss so I I, um but I I did talk to my girlfriend before doing this and said this is something I'd like to try so if she could um alert me if I started behaving irrationally or something like that what was her reaction um she she's somebody who has kind of shared some of the earlier drug experiences we've talked about um I think she said she felt uncomfortable um, that I felt I needed to take something to make me feel good. Um, but I think I, over the kind of gradual phase of starting doing it, proved I wasn't turning into a different person. How did you go about getting the substance in your hands? A uh, friend of a friend said he could, the next time he got one, could get me one. So kind of the way it works with a lot of these things. I wasn't crying so much I got back to work I started writing a lot and drawing a lot and that's what I do and I was able to do those things I was able to hold the minimum focus not a lot of focus but enough to do something and just to see that I was even motivated to do that was a huge sign did the world look different 
I think so. I think that became clearer in the few months after leaving hospital. It was strange. And I think for a long time, it was like, oh, what, how long will this last? You know, so it was like, okay, I feel okay. I can think about facing life again. But there's, there was such a fear and such a worry that it would, you know, I'd just wake up tomorrow and it would be back. Right. I've been here before. I've tried other medications. There's still that going on in the back of your mind. This won't last. I knew it was different, but I was still worried. Or anytime you have a bad day, anytime you have a wobble, you think that's it. I'm stuck back feeling like this forever. I remember my doctor said, don't hope for too much. You know, the real work in a way starts now. People think they leave hospital. I'm healed. Off I go. You know, everything's fixed. But really, this is when the real hard graft starts of getting back into normal life and living again. And for me, it felt like learning how to live without depression, because depression in a way establishes coping mechanisms, which, Mm. you know, my coping mechanism was to go to bed and cry for days on end. When you're no longer depressed, that's not an option anymore. You, You keep going through the bad days. And that means you have to learn whole different ways of managing in a way. Did the world look different? Yes, hugely. If you're going to be self-employed, you know, it's so hard as it is. It's so hard to make a living. It's so hard to get yourself out there. But at every turn, I was hindered. And then suddenly, I guess I got out of hospital and and I suddenly had all this impatience that finally I could get on with things and go for it. And that maybe, just maybe... I wouldn't end up back in bed, miserable, unable to do the things I dreamt of doing, which was also scary. But to see myself finally taking some of those steps and setting things up and actually having little small wins along the way. I remember at one stage, my mum said to me, you know, in some phone call, maybe a month or two after I got out of hospital and I was going, and I want to do this and I want to do that. And I want to, you know, all the things that suddenly felt possible. And I remember she said, I think you need a sign up on your wall or something that says this is just the beginning. You know, I was 31, but for me, it felt like day one, starting from scratch. You can definitely feel this like a warm, fuzzy sensation in your stomach, um, a bit like a, a glass of wine or something like that, but you, you don't feel um, impaired in any way. You definitely know you it, it's real sort of thing I, I do remember i did it at a weekend probably because that's what i was doing a lot of back then went for a long dog walk listened to podcasts listened to some music and thought this feels okay this i don't feel a little different person i don't feel like i'm unable to do my job or have conversations with people about spreadsheets or whatever i was doing at the time um yeah so, so I, I felt like it was something i wanted to continue i felt like it's kind of helped me understand who I am. I think it's helped my relationships. It's not like I've ever had to kind of taper the dose up, building a resistance or anything like that. I think one drop now feels like it would do the same as it did then. Did you worry when you went to work that you might be being perceived differently, even if you felt like you were managing it? Uh, Yes, yes. There's no way of avoiding that kind of first time you're in uh, team meeting and going around the room and thinking I've done something here which is effectively illegal and um, the people in the room probably wouldn't give me the the 
same sympathy that my friends would. This is um, bizarre. Do you think your judgment is impaired, though? Because, you know, I've had the thing before where I've been for a drink at lunchtime and then had an important business call come in. Sometimes you just have to take the call when you've had a drink. And I found myself saying things and being a lot more free and open about a conversation or an opinion than I would be otherwise because of the alcohol. But that doesn't mean that my judgment's better. It means my judgment has been impaired. Strangely, you know, maybe in business that can be useful counterintuitively to say what you really think. But you're not necessarily in control of it. No. Is it a bit like that? Are there times where it's kind of truth serum and you should just shut up? Uh, possibly, yeah. One of the things uh, my girlfriend did, did mention, um, I was never explicit with her about today I've taken a drop, today I haven't. But she, in those early days, she pulled me up once or twice and said, it was quite honest how I'd approached a conversation with that I'd had with her. So the, the truth serum thing it might be a good analogy there. And in And at work as well did you find that happening did you find that you were i don't know less less compassionate maybe not so good at reading body signals i, I don't know no strangely i feel like it makes me a better um listener um but i felt like i, I really wanted to hear about people's weekend and kind of i uh, um, increased my compassion towards people um uh, yeah which sounds unusual saying it out loud what are the telltale signs do you think that you might have physically been giving off, you know, in the same way that a drunk person might stagger? I don't... I think I was always conscious that um, pupil dilation with some of these chemicals can happen and has happened when I've taken the recreational things. So I think when, on the days I had, I'd always kind of just check myself in the mirror when I was leaving. So typical antidepressants such as SSRIs and SNRIs, they try to increase the serotonin or the norepinephrine in your brain. Ketamine doesn't. It just increases the overall connectivity of the brain. So it's like all of those pathways that are established in your brain, it's like it just gives us a bit of a, a shakeup. And that's what I felt happened for me and for me now looking now having studied a bit of neuroplasticity it's that we establish these neural pathways and maybe they get so well established that you just keep going down that pathway so if you've established a pathway of grief or loss or sadness at a certain point say after the loss you come back to just your brain going back to kind of normal but what if your brain just keeps going down those pathways of misery, sadness, grief. And now I kind of feel like that's what was happening to me. Could I have fixed it some other way? I, I don't know. Um, but that what they from what they understand about ketamine, and again, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist. I think they they don't even know. I remember when I went on lithium as well, the psychiatrist said, we don't even know why it works. We just know it works most of the time. That it just seems to increase all the connections rather than just trying to increase the say happy connections of serotonin it just increases all of them and that gives the brain enough of a of a reset somehow i got to know there was a, a cleaner and obviously the cleaners were doing probably some of the hardest work of all after patients deceased going in and kind of physically mopping down um these wards mm. but we didn't quite know exactly how covid was transmitted um, there was a cleaner who um, 
I got to know because I'd see her as she came on and off the wards and I had a conversation with her and I actually kind of uh, took her details and tried to help her get a, a permanent job within the hospital or she was Eastern European and I was trying to help her. And I think um, that having that confidence to ask somebody more than just, hello, how are you, as they were walking past, um, helped kind of create a relationship there. I really wanted this person to find work afterwards, after COVID. Um, I'm not still in touch with her, but it definitely it just stands out to me as an example of that kind of different version of myself connecting with people a bit better. I, I, I kind of thought the the version of me that was doing that was doing this microdosing that was kind of more com confident talking to strangers um more compassionate like hearing people a bit better and um better at connecting with people i kind of felt that was a better version of me than the one i am did you think there was any contradiction there you know between what you felt would make you a better version of yourself and what i guess most of your colleagues would probably think was professional conduct in that environment, you know, particularly a healthcare setting. Um, I, th I am aware that it's, it's very unorthodox, but um, I do kind of compare it back to this um, coffee example that if we were to, if the coffee shop in the canteen had shut and all these doctors were coming up there without their dose of caffeine, people would have been a different version of themselves, would have been less effective at their job, would have um, been more um, stressed with one another. So yeah. I, uh, I, I think I, I am acutely aware that it's, it's not normal, but I do think there are different substances that people kind of take that um, are mind-altering mind and we choose which we take to be the versions of ourselves we want to be. Were you anxious about the course of ketamine ending then? At first I was, but when I spoke to my doctor, um, he basically said to me, the work has been done. It's caused a reset in your brain. That's what we were looking for. The rest is just weaning off so that you're not, you know, having withdrawals. So at that point, of course, I was still nervous that, you know, oh God, what if I stop it? And within a few weeks, my mood plummets back down again. But I really felt at least something has worked finally. And if this has worked, then even worst case scenario, I get depressed again next year, in 10 years, whatever. At least I know that there are other things to try. Whereas before I felt like, God, there's just nothing. So I remember in a conversation with one of the med students who was going home and studying it every night, they were, you know, I was one of the first patients to get it and I was a real success story for them. Especially I remember one graduate student who was there and he was going, I can't believe, like I saw you on your intake day when you were in front of me crying, unable, you know, completely beyond it. And just, and now to see you leaving like a transformed person, you know, roughly mm. the same age as me, young, you know, full of possibilities. It was so hard to see you on that first day in comparison to the end. Since I originally got in touch with you, I have kind of changed my, um, the way I do it now. I probably only do it maybe once a month. So it, it's, I feel like it's something I took for a period of my life I liked doing it I felt it kind of um, uh, helped me 
get in touch with myself and understand myself a bit better, I don't feel I need to do it as regularly to kind of still be in touch with that version of myself. I can have those confident conversations now. So in practical terms then, so to take a kind of social anxiety as an example, because that's something a lot of people can relate to, you know, you get into a big crowded room of people at a party, wedding reception or something, you just don't feel motivated to talk to people or you feel nervous about what they're going to think of me. Completely understand how a drug can help you in that situation. How do you channel the feelings you had when you used to be on that drug into a situation when you're not? Uh, so I think it is that kind of um, you're aware of how how your confidence in that situation would be reciprocated by people talking to you and you think, well, instead of going into this and being shy and standing in the corner and not, not talking to people, just put yourself out there, smile at people, and people smile back. It, it, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, th- I definitely, yeah, feel like it, it kind of I, taught me to be more confident and to ask people how they're, like, the, guy, the people who work in the coffee shops and things like that around the hospital, there were times when I'd kind of have a chit-chat with them, and I've still maintained those relationships. Whereas I've worked in the hospital for two two years before that, or as a bit more like flat white mate, and moved on. So I think, I, um, in some ways, it kind of allowed me to see people and try to connect with people on a slightly more um, personal level. Did you have the experience that you had because you were in Austria? Would it be possible to be prescribed ketamine in the UK or Ireland? As far as I hear, it's becoming more common, especially in London. There's something now called ketamine clinics where you just go in and and you do your dose. I don't know much about it, but I heard that quite recently. I absolutely feel at this stage, Austria for me was really not the plan. Now I feel like it was really meant to be. I was meant to meet that particular doctor the night I went into the ER. He was really instrumental in this whole treatment. I don't think any of it would have happened in the same way had I ended up, say, in another hospital. I might be wrong, but I felt such a tie to him as a psychiatrist. I'd never had a psychiatrist like that. And and I felt really lucky to have met him. Does that make you a bit angry, though, as well? Because obviously we found you in a mode where you're very grateful that happened to you. Yeah. But does it make you a bit angry that it, it probably wouldn't have happened to you in other countries in Europe? You know, I don't know. I haven't researched enough to know what would have happened to me in other countries. I know that feeling good with your doctor means so much. I know that it it makes such a difference if you if you have somebody. We, we do know there's a, a hierarchy of drugs, though, right? Yeah. Some drugs good, some drugs bad. You know, some drugs take them for mental health, some drugs don't. They give you a trip. Your experience is it's not that clear cut. Probably, yeah. I'm speaking as someone who was lucky enough to be able to seek help. I was lucky enough to then have health insurance to put me in hospital. Of course, I wish it was more, um, I don't know if available is the word, available to the people that really need it in a safe way. Tamsin and Nathan. Needless to say, their experiences are theirs. Everyone is different. You should ideally never take drugs without medical advice and preferably within the law. Uh, If you have suicidal thoughts as well, 
Um, do remember the Samaritans are always there. You'll find their phone number in our show notes. And if, like Tamsin and Nathan, you have a story that you would like to share with me and the man fans here on the pod in 2023, then you know what to do. Modernman.co.uk, fill out the feedback form. We can't reply to every email we receive, but we do read every single one of them. And really, it's such a precious thing that we have this bond with you guys and you want to share your stories with us. Thank you. Uh, Coming up next, Alex Fox on the G-Spot. Except apparently, it's not called that anymore. You'll find out why after this. Uh, before we find out what your challenge is for next month, let's pause to thank our sponsors for the Zeitgeist this month, BBC Maestro. Yes, BBC Maestro is a subscription-based streaming platform. It's got loads of amazing online courses that you can take part in, which are taught by some really incredible names. Yeah, like Alan Moore, Julia Donaldson. It's an incredible repository of online video lessons from people who really know what they're talking about. Um, I'm really excited because Bill Lawrence is on there. Do you know who that is? I don't. Should I know this? He's a, well, no, it's a geeky thing to know who he is, but okay. he's, a, he's a comedy writer. Mm. And he's done an online course for BBC Maestro in writing comedy for television. He's the guy behind Scrubs and Ted Lasso. The thing about these courses is they're long. Like, he's, it's not just guy talks to camera for half an hour and shares some tips that you'd get if you went to go and see them speaking at any literary event. He has done a bespoke 21-lesson, four-and-a-half-hour course on how to write comedy for TV, how to pitch, how to work with actors, how to find your voice. I mean, they're proper deep dives. The one that really stood out for me, though, is... um Brian Cox teaching acting. and mm. I, I don't think I've ever said this to you, Ollie. But I remind you of Brian Cox? You, you're... I do have that steely determination. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's say yeah. But I have always wanted to learn how to act properly. I don't necessarily want to be an actor, but I just quite like the idea of um, knowing how to act. And the thing about Brian Cox is, I mean, what a name to be teaching you something like yeah. acting. Well, there'd be transferable skills, wouldn't there? Even if you have no intention of being an actor, you know, the the things that he's going to be talking about in that course, how to work with other actors, how to interpret your character, how to learn your lines, all of that stuff might be relevant for whatever you do for a job. Yeah, I was thinking more of explaining to my other half that I did put the clothes away. She just thinks that I didn't, but then I could act the way that I did. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, maybe you will make that pivot, Ollie. You know, there's there's always roles for the back half of the calf in uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. You're saying I'd be <laughs> a literal ass. Anyway, uh, if this appeals to you as it should, then use the code MAN to get 40% off your favourite video course or 40% off a subscription at bbcmaestro.com. Yes, go to bbcmaestro.com and use the code M-A-N-N to get your 40% off your favourite video course or 40% off a subscription, which gives you access to every single BBC Maestro course. Let the greatest be your teacher with BBC Maestro. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Man fans, would you like an extra hour in your day? I can't actually offer you that, even though it is a leap year, but if I could, what would you do with it? I mean, once you devoted more time to listening to this podcast obviously. Perhaps you'd get out for a run. Perhaps you would cook something from fresh. Perhaps you would help your friends or family who you never seem to have time for. A lot of us spend our lives like that, wishing we had more time to do the things we want to do, but instead stressed and running around doing things we have to do. But the best way to squeeze those special things into your schedule is to know what it is that's really important to you. 
and make it a priority. And therapy can help you with that, finding what matters to you so that you can do more of it. And fitting therapy itself into your schedule is no longer a concern thanks to BetterHelp. It's therapy that's entirely online. So it's designed to be convenient, flexible. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash man. That's betterhelp.com slash M-A-N-N. Time for our monthly sex section. It's the Foxhole with Alex Fox. Happy New Year, Alex. Very happy New Year, Ollie Man. I've got good vibes. I am approaching 2023 with all the verve of a shaken bottle of Verve Clicquot. I'm really going to go for broke this time. I mean, I wouldn't say you were a pessimistic person before. Oh, I'm going to be nauseatingly optimistic yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this anus around. Well before... <laughs> well, before you inevitably hit a wall i'm glad we <laughs> can, <laughs> thanks for your faith my friend <laughs> can, uh, realism can discuss um some exciting news which is that there's well you, well you have fetish news for us well a whole year ago i put up a tweet asking if anybody out there had an elbow fetish long story won't get into why mm. uh, and now several people have actually reached out to me <laughs> to say that yes they do one chap in particular from the usa sent me an email saying that he's particularly into bony ones looking at them or feeling them by pressing his palms against them and putting them in his mouth during sex and what ticks his boxes wow i was really interested that he's he theorizes that i quote, I think this stems from developing sexually during a time where all I could see were elbows, knees and the back of the neck. Another person who gets an elbona told me that they love biting the weenus, <laughs> careful mm. how you pronounce that one, which is like the point of the elbow. Um, I quote, it's a place that doesn't hurt very much and you can usually bite really hard. So I'm less into the elbows themselves, more the idea of getting away with biting someone incredibly toughly without risky consequences. Okay, that kind of <laughs> makes sense. Because I was thinking when you were saying about putting it in your mouth, I mean, there are just so many other bits, aren't there, that just spring to mind first. There are people who are into elbow sucking. Yeah. Um, I imagine having someone else suck their elbows rather than attempting to suck their own. Sucking your own elbow sounds like the kind of like jack-off trick that teenage boys get up to, doesn't it? Like it it's supposed like to represent to something. Have to have ribs removed in yeah, order yeah, yeah, to yeah. do it. Well, time for our question of sex. Remember, if you have one for Alex, you can head over to our website and click the feedback form. And it's from an anonymous pair of long-time listeners and man fans, uh, the male portion of whom say... Alex, my wife and I have been together a long time, so it's always nice to find something new. I was fingering her, puts in brackets, trying to describe it. I think they've described it adequately. I think we all know where we are. That's not the new thing at this point (laughs) in your relationship. Oh, this is good. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Just discovered digits. (laughs) I was fingering her inside and up, as in towards her front. And it felt slightly bumpier than other areas and was great for her my question is what is that area called uh what else would be recommended for play focused on that area for example are there any recommended toys i mean without going into great detail of my own personal fingering adventures i i sort of recognize the topography he's describing there go on Uh, what is it called Take a, take a guess, Ollie, because I, I see like a smidgen of confidence smeared across your face, but you're hedging your bets, aren't you? I'm hedging my bets because, I, look, I know it's related to the G-spot, I know it's related to the clitoris, but it's neither, isn't it? It's something in between the two. 
You are pretty much bang on. Now, I think I know off the bat and right inside the twat that this is indeed <laughs> a description of the artist formerly known as the G-Spot. We'll get into why it's called something else now oh. uh, in just a second. Okay. But before I, I delve straight into that, I, uh, the reason that I'm quite confident in making this assessment is because our listener says this feels good. If there was a bumpy area that didn't feel great mm. or that was new, that hadn't been noticed before, was unusual for this person was creating any kind of obstruction i would say go to your gp or go to a sex specialist and just get this checked out to be on the safe side but i'm pretty sure that yes as you say ollie man this is the g-spot um originally named after a german gynecologist called ernst grafenberg in the 1950s but now described as the g area why is that this is because the term spot suggests a very pinpointed location which is present in everybody who has a vagina and when this term first started to be used it caused a lot of consternation for certain people who couldn't find this spot mm. they went hunting for it and it was it was eluding them it was evading them and they felt like something was wrong with them calling it the g area is a reflection of how amorphous and how changeable it can be it's in this this vague location. It can differ between different people, so towards the belly button, not towards the backbone, mm -hmm. about an inch up that feels ridged or engorged or bumpy. It tends to swell up and puff up. Um, during sex. During any type of um, stimulation. turn on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you, The more excited you are, the more puffy and fluffy it gets, much like an erect penis. It does feel a lot more sensitive to a lot of people. That is likely because... It is an area of the vaginal wall through which the hidden internal parts of the clitoris can be stimulated. We now know that the clit is a lot bigger than just that little glands, that little um, magical pea that you see on the outside of the body. Mm. And actually, it's a much larger structure that extends. It's got these, uh, these bulbs and these legs, these pair of bulbs and legs that extend deeper down into the body and that you can rub essentially by rubbing that inside pit. But presumably it behooves the fingerer to use different techniques, different pressures, different speeds, depending which part they're engaging with. And depending on what the person who owns that part tends to prefer mm. as well. It's all very personalised, as should all sex be. Um, generally, though, a lot of people start with, if they're, if they're fingering, if they're using their digits, a come-hither motion. So um, inserting one or two fingers inside the vagina, so they're pointing upwards towards the front of the body and caressing the G area as though they're beckoning it mm. towards them. You'll want to make sure that your fingernails are a lot less pointy than mine before you undertake that. Lots of lube, as ever. Some people prefer firmer pressure, so they more prefer a pressing or a tapping rather than a rubbing. Yeah. Some people like circular motions. Experiment and see what adds a boom to the womb room for you. I mean, the come hither motion that you're doing with your finger, thats you're sticking it right up and round, which feels like something you'd get to after a, a little bit more lubrication. A lot of people do prefer slightly more full-on stimulation to this part of the body. This is something that you need to talk to your play partner or your lover about. Um, different people will have different preferences and they will reach 
those preferences in different periods of time and, and via different routes as well. It, you've got to talk about this. I know I feel boring saying that everybody's got to talk about it. I talk incessantly about how much talking we've all got to do, but really the best way to find out what feels good to your partner is to ask them and to experiment and together. And actually, well, no, but what is different this time is often you say, don't talk about it in the bedroom. Talk about it, go for a walk, you know, talk about it in the sitting room. Oh, but that's more of a problem, Exactly. Isn't it? This isn't yeah. a problem. This is, does this feel good? Should I do it slower? Should I do it harder? Do you want it there? Is, I mean, actually, that isn't, in a way, <laughs> as awkward when you're doing it, is it? Like, strangely, it can be, or even just getting someone to guide your hands, right? Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I hope that in all of these years, me saying communicate about sexual issues outside of the bedroom uh, in order to make them uh, more palatable and feel less sensitive Doesn't hasn't been interpreted by anyone in as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just as though you're some kind of like cloistered nun. Um, whilst you're talking about techniques, you may also want to talk about some of the specially designed toys on the market, of which there are a plethora, which are specifically designed to target the G area. Um, the good old rabbit, precisely the reason that so many people love rodgering themselves with that, is that it is designed to be a dual stimulation device mm. with that external one rabbit's in, head yeah. Yeah, on, the, on the glands of the clitoris for most, for most folks. And then that internal shaft for many is resting around the G area. So mm. you've got that bit on the outside and the bit on the inside. If you want to kind of take your rabbit to the next level, there's loads of new versions out there at the moment. There's one called the Lilo Enigma. Looks like a kind of pirate's hook hand. Hopefully, if it works on you, it will make you say, but, <laughs> but in a pleasurable way. Yeah. Um, what's different about that is that it's shaped to vibrate against the G area whilst sort of uh, suctioning and uh, stimulating the external clitoris with uh, sonic waves. Another way that you can mix things up is there's an, a company called O-Touch who've made something called a magic stick, <laughs> which sounds like someone should be beating someone else within a fairy tale. Uh, that's more like a traditional rabbit, but the ears can actually be slid up and down the main shaft. So if you find that standard rabbits aren't really aligned with the way that your body happens to be designed, mm. then something where the ears are adjustable on the shaft like this may suit you better because you can make it suit you specifically. But you might also want to experiment with a more kind of um, probing vibrator or just a dildo that is specifically designed only to target the G area. One of the most uh, legendary items in this category is the Enjoy Steel Wand. It's a really hefty, heavy metal wand. And having like a bit of weight to it, having some solidity, means that you can get that pressure. You can properly wield it, which is what some people need in that area. And if you really want to focus on G area play, is there anything else you can do to make that like, you know, the main course? Hmm. Well, if you do a search at the moment, you might find a procedure known as the G-Shot or G-Spot Amplification, GSA. This involves the injection of hyaluronic acid, which is um, a, a chemical used in a lot of skin treatments and uh, wrinkle, wrinkle fillers and, and lip plumpers. Um, in this case, it's actually injected directly into the vaginal wall Whoa. in that G area. So, cosmetic surgery, but not... I mean, it's not cosmetic because you can't see it, right? It's just no, it's a injected directly into your ejaculatory zone. Just now, for a sexual 
thrill. That's a natural. Supposedly so. The, yeah. the the surgeons and the medics who carry this out say that it lasts around six months. Um, and in a study suspiciously commissioned by the doctors who pioneered the G shot, they claim that eighty seven percent of participants reported enhanced sexual gratification for around four to six months after having it. They reckon that it's going to make everything plumper and stimulate that mm. area. Well, I it makes sense, th- doesn't it? But it's just you can imagine what goes wrong Theoretically, yeah, but yeah. I also think it's quite risky. Yeah, yeah. And I just think there's so much else that you can try before you start injecting hyaluronic acid into your downstairs area. If you've got a question of sex or you have a fetish that you've never seen documented anywhere online and you'd like to be the Google whack for it... Uh, what can you do? Well, you can not whack your question into Google. Instead, you can give that the elbow and send it to me nice. instead. So at well modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, just hit feedback. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this episode of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Laurel Janiszewski from Oak Park, Illinois, childhood home of Ernest Hemingway. Uh, she says, Hi Ollie, I have already had plenty of experience spreading the word about your show, and if a uniform is required, I shall have my sister crochet it for me. If someone else has Oak Park scooped, then please provide me their name and address so that I may persuade them to surrender their title to me. <laughs> it's no need for intimidation, Laurel. Uh, it's all good. Dave and Lauren do have Chicago, but uh, Oak Park is still available. Or it was... Laurel, I now pronounce you Manbassador for Oak Park, Illinois. Congratulations. Uh, if you'd like to be a Manbassador, then buy us a beer, drop us a line. Full details on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on February 10th.